Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey Pediocast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDOcast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy Rob Pizzola. Rob, what's going on, man? Uh, not much. I mean, crazy. Uh, I, I want to say not crazy deadline that we had earlier this week, uh, but anticipating what's coming, I guess, in the next month or so. Yeah. What, what, what's this part of the season like for you in terms of um, in terms of the action on the, on, on the lines and stuff? Because I, I remember when we were doing our preseason podcast, you were saying how like in the second half of the year, there, there's quite a bit of a discrepancy in terms of what teams you know, objectives or goals are depending on where they are in the playoff picture, especially if they get mathematically eliminated is, are you like looking ahead to the playoffs already or, or is this part of the regular season actually of interest to you? I mean, every part of seasons of interest to me, but I'll, I'll say that this year has been obviously an unprecedented season in what we've seen so far. So a lot of what is typically applied for me around trade deadline time in years past may not apply this year. And I'm kind of proceeding with caution because of that. Uh, normally I'd always proceed with caution right after the deadline anyways, because I don't think it's, it's as simple as just, you know, subtracting the value of a player with one team and adding it to the team that he's going to. Um, I, I, I truly think that, you know, there's, there's something to stylistic fits and things of that nature. Um, like a guy like Anthony Mantha, for example, going to Washington, I think that's a great fit for him in general, where he will produce at a much higher level than he did uh, where he was in Detroit, but that's just purely a hypothesis. It's not something that I can back with data right away. So it, it is typically a time of year where I kind of slow down a little bit in terms of probably just playing my largest edges, seeing how things play out. Um, but yeah, this year is very different because normally in the past around trade deadline or right after trade deadline, you'd see what I call a, a motivational component in hockey where there would be a much larger range between the top teams and the bottom teams as the year progressed. We hit that range about a month ago this season, right? especially with a team like Buffalo who just completely fell off the cliff and Colorado being 
I think the best team that I've, I've had in the history of my model, um, as long as I've been modeling hockey. So I, I don't know if that motivational aspect exists already this year, or if, if, if teams like Buffalo and New Jersey and Ottawa and Detroit have kind of been mailing it in for a while now, knowing what's inevitable. Yeah. Well, I think there's two ways to look at it, right? Like I think, uh, we both agree that I think from the player perspective, like they're most guys are probably trying their hardest the entire season because they're playing to stay in the lineup, especially on these bad teams or trying to earn another contract or, or, you know, try to show that they can uh, be part of the future for them. But I think from like the organizational perspective, we certainly saw it at the deadline where pretty much every team that's kind of on the fence of the playoffs or like in the fourth spot for either the central or the West and staring down a round one matchup against either Tampa Bay or Colorado or, or what, what have you was like, we're just going to do nothing right now because I mean, a, there's no real financial incentive to do so. Cause we're not benefiting from home playoff games, but B like, what's the point The talent discrepancies is pretty clear between us and them. So I think it, that's what kind of led to uh, the slower trade deadline, but it was also very like, I thought noteworthy how teams like the stars, the predators, um, you know, the coyotes, the wild, the blues, like they literally did absolutely nothing. And I think that speaks to that motivational component of it. Yeah. And part of it, I think is, is playing the same teams over and over, over the course of the season and realizing at least from a, a general manager point of view, that maybe that this gap is insurmountable in the playoffs because we're going to play these teams again. Um, you know, if St. Louis is an example uh, has been getting crushed against Vegas, Vegas and Colorado this year, they're likely going to have to go through one, if not both of them um, to get to the final four this season. So you, you come to a point as a general manager where I think you have to be a realist and say, there's nothing I can really add here. That's, going to make that much of an impact in, in taking on these two teams. So, uh, whereas in previous years, you know, you'd hope that potentially an eight seed or seven seed upsets one of those top two teams and you get in, you know, you basically you get into the playoffs and you have a chance this year. I think now that you're seeing these teams play each other eight, nine times, teams really know where they stand against the opponents that they're going to go up against. I, I mean, that's my, my belief. And I think that's kind of being shown as the season goes on because you know, normally you'd only play teams in your division five or six times. Um, and now we're seeing just a, a, like a, co- a lot of common trends in maybe that certain opponents are a bad matchup for others. Right. Um, there, there's, you know, the Leafs seem to, you know, just dominate certain teams. I, I say the Leafs, I'm sorry, I'm very Toronto centric because I live just outside of Toronto, <laughs> but you know, and then they play Ottawa and they struggle against Ottawa for some reason, and no one can really figure it out. And I think there's a lot of examples this year where you look around the league and you'll say, this team has really had success against um, one or two teams in their division. And for some reason they can't beat the others. And I don't know if that's just small sample size and randomness I've looked at it from an expected goal standpoint, and I think a lot of the results have been fair. It's not just been a lot of luck. Uh, Detroit loses, you know, Detroit beats Carolina in back-to-back games. Uh, I don't know. Like, is is there something there? I, I, this season, just as a whole, is is uh, forces you to to look at things at a in a com- completely different lens because we haven't seen a season like this before. Well, that's kind of why I wanted to have you on at this point, because I thought it was a good opportunity for us to sort of reflect on, on the preseason conversation, uh, yourself, me and, and Dom had in terms of sort of trying to, you know, we were like posing questions at the time of what is this unique season with the scheduling and a divisional alignments going to 
tell us in terms of matchup data, in terms of head to heads, in terms of um, how teams fit against each other and so on and so forth. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, are you seeing anything uh, in terms of that? Because for me, if, and I, I struggle because I'm not sure how much of this is just recency bias, but it feels like this year, just looking at the league as a whole from a bigger picture point of view, the imbalance between the top teams and the bottom teams for me is as great as it's ever been, maybe even greater. And I'm wondering if it's partly because we're just seeing Washington beat Buffalo and New Jersey. And I think they're 14 0 one against them or something this season. And you're just seeing that time and time again. And if you see Colorado just playing Arizona three, four times within a span of a week and just crushing them completely, it really hammers that point home. Whereas if it was spread out over a full 82 game season, it'll be kind of tougher to, to sort of latch onto that in terms of your expectations. So I'm wondering how much of that is actually reality and how much of it is just sort of like uh, the schedule messing with our brains a little bit. It's, it's really tough to say, like, you know, just being as, as transparent as I can possibly be, this is probably been the least confident that I've ever been betting on hockey since I, I started betting because of we don't have a precedent for a lot of these these things and I think your hypothesis is probably right you see teams you know you, you typically wouldn't see uh, teams play each other three or four times over the course of a week in past seasons and and when it's a good team against a bad team it can make it really look like those teams are just like one is an AHL team essentially playing yeah. against the other because of the the short sample. Whereas if it was drawn out over the course of the year, maybe not. I don't know. There, there's, there's so much that can, that can possibly be influencing these games. But I mean, the, the one thing for me that's, you know, is these rest situations, right? Right. Like, especially as the year has gone on, especially as COVID's taken its toll on probably like a third of the teams in the league that have missed time over the course of this year and seeing our a condensed schedule. I would have thought that that would bring the gap closer together between these teams. Like everybody's playing in a limited time frame. Everyone's playing four and six nights, you know, six and nine nights. We've seen some actual absurd uh, situations that we haven't seen before, but it's actually had the complete adverse effect where I, I really don't know how to it's completely opposite of what I would have thought would have happened um, in this type of situation. Well, the reason why I'm surprised to hear you say that a little bit was I was under the impression that favorites were taking care of business this season for the most part. Is that they, not true? They are. So this is like, it's been a bad year to be an underdog better for right. the most part. Um, well, I mean, yes and no. If you're taking underdogs plus one and a half, seems like they're just losing close games or losing in overtime or, or, or shootouts or whatever there's been a, a pretty high percentage of close games this year, but yeah, the favorites are taking care of business. And, and my, my, you know, my thought was as the year would go on and maybe, I mean, we still have a month left in the regular season. So maybe we, we do get a change in, in the, in the sample here that, you know, you know, things shift around in the last, last month here. But my thought would be as the year goes on and all these teams are playing in these really tough spots, you would probably see more underdogs pulling upsets just on the nature that the favorites maybe don't have their legs. They can't separate themselves from a, a skill perspective that much if both teams are tired, but it just, it just hasn't happened for whatever reason. And it's um, it's caused me like, I don't, I don't want to say grief. Grief isn't the right word, but like there's been two or three times this year where I've been ready to just tear it down and be like, I need to really uh, figure this out. And sometimes 
things just correct themselves and sometimes they don't. Uh, but it's been, uh, it's been one of those where I, like we talked, you, you're talking about that podcast we had going into the season with yeah. uh, me, you and Dom. I mean, I don't, I don't think that anything I thought at that point still holds true at this point. Yeah. It's funny. I think I actually, it wasn't recorded on the air. It was like, after I ended the call or after I stopped recording, you, we kind of traded some, uh, awards picks back and forth between each other. And I highlighted Ralph Kruger's first coach to get fired as my weight favorite bet. And you highlighted Ralph Kruger's potential coach of the year's value. And we were laughing about it. And I think it was like 16 to one or something for first coach fired. Now, obviously, uh, Claude Julian and Jeff Ward both got fired before him, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what makes it fun though, ultimately like not knowing, but certainly, uh, when, when there's money involved and especially as, as a handicapper, I imagine it's difficult. I, I think it's interesting to hear you bring up the rest component because for me, it's a real question of whether we've properly calibrated for and quantified the effect of fatigue. I think when we think of tired teams from a gambling perspective, we're sort of like, Oh, what are their chances of winning this game? We tend to think of it from the goalie perspective. Cause usually on a back-to-back, it means the, the lesser goalie might be playing one of them. And, and so you want to lower their likelihood of winning. Uh, but in conversations that I've had with people who work for teams, I'm always blown away by like how much, uh, thought and energy they put into the actual scheduling logistics of like identifying periods of time where like, this is going to be brutal. And even looking at other teams, like looking at their rivals and being like, wow, this team's going to really struggle in, in March because look at how many condensed games they have here. And those aren't necessarily conversations we have as, as fans or even as analysts, because I think no one really wants to hear about how pro athletes might be tired. Like we kind of expect them to just like be at peak efficiency at all times and maybe they'll get hurt. But if they're in the lineup, we expect the best out of them. And I really do think, uh, and I'm curious if you feel like the the actual lines themselves uh, properly account for this, because I, I feel like just from uh, the outside point of view, from our perspective as analysts, we probably don't do a good enough job of talking about it. Yeah. So a couple of comments on that. I mean, the first is that we're seeing home, I mean, home ice advantage is down in hockey and has con- consistently gone down for the past decade, but this is a phenomenon that's happening across all major North American sports. The NFL pretty much had zero home field advantage last year, um, which is kind of unprecedented. And this is including when there was fans in stadiums as well at points over the course of the season, even the year prior, it was trending downwards. I think a lot of that is to do with the way uh, that teams have really figured out travel, optimal times to travel uh, to games, um, schedules for players and things of that nature. So I think from, a team perspective, there's been huge advancements across all major North American sports there that are really mitigating the effects of those. Um, in terms of a, from a betting perspective, um, histo- like, you know, essentially what I would do if I was trying to to model a specific game is I'm just looking at historical numbers, right? A team that's on an, an average rest situation, how they fare, and then looking at every single situation where a team plays three and four nights, right. uh, specifically. Th- how those three and four nights shape up. Is it home, home, gap away, home away, gap away, things like all the possible combinations. And I have sort of a a numerical number for what I think that specific rest situation is worth, but that's like, it works for me now. I think there's potential to improve that down the road um, and, and gain a little bit more of an edge on the market. For example, I have no notion of if a team played an afternoon game or a night game the day Mm, before and how that, factors into the equation because if, if two teams are playing a back-to-back and this can't happen this year, 
But in a previous year, as an example, if one team played at 1 p.m. the day before and the other team played at 7, theoretically, the team that played at 1 p.m. should not be given the same rest situation as the team that played at 7. I don't think anyone really is accounting for that yet. So there's still room for improvement from those points of view. But in this year, the, the real challenge is you get to situations that have never happened before. Right. You get to a team playing, you know, I, I actually don't know if this has happened. I'm just throwing it out there, but like a 14 games in, in 21 nights type of thing. I'm sure it's happened. This well, season. the Canucks are about to play 19 and 31, which is like, I mean, it's deplorable from a human element perspective, but it, from a, a gambling perspective, it, it's like little or never happened. So, so, I mean, for me, I, I don't, I don't know how to quantify that. I, I can only look at, at situations that have happened historically and, and use those, um, but it's probably not right to team, treat a team that's played 14 and 21 the same as a team that's played 12 and 21, even though they're both playing four and six, as an example. Yeah. Well, I, and I do wonder, um, as we get into this final month of the season, because I do think there will be unique circumstances because of the uh, makeup games that are being played around the league, there are going to be elements where I think like recently the Predators had a game against the Lightning and then they play the stars the next day and now they're playing the lightning again. And I don't think the lightning have had a game in between. And I mean, not that the lightning need any sort of other uh, advantage, but like, that's clearly a situation where um, we need to adjust our, our expectations. I think that the, the rested versus tired component of it is certainly something that, that probably has as much more significant effect than we like to believe. Yeah. I think for sure. That's one of them. Uh, I had a hypothesis probably uh, mid-February that as the year goes on, the older teams in the league would have more trouble with these rest situations. It's actually been the inverse. Don't ask me it's how. It's veteran or, experience. Or they why. know how to manage their bodies. <laughs> I mean, that that could be the the narrative around it. Maybe I was just completely wrong. Think, I mean, they're all professional athletes. Like we said, they should all be in, in peak physical condition. But Uh, Yeah, the older teams have not necessarily struggled more. Boston has, and specifically with a lot of their their aging veterans. But um, you know, it's hard. You know, they're down to third, third and fourth string goalie. They're playing without Tuukka Rask and Yarrow Halak, so that plays into it as well. Although their their peripherals have not been good, but yeah, a lot of these things that logically, I kind of pride myself in being able to apply logic to sports. I'm not the best statistical modeler. I'm not the best mathematician. Um, I'm just, you know, have a pretty broad skill set, and this year has, has certainly been difficult to do so because all the things that I, I would have thought really would have played a, a larger factor, um, uh, have not. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been very tricky to quantify a lot of this stuff. Well, it's tricky if your main strength is applying logic to the most illogical sport I can think of. Yeah. I mean, people always tell me I'm crazy when I bet on hockey. They used to tell me I was crazy when I bet on baseball, which I was said, you know, I'm winning. So, and now I look back on that and they're probably right. Considering, you know, major league baseball just switched to baseball and didn't even tell people for an entire season. Like imagine modeling a sport where you're modeling off data on one ball for decades. And all of a sudden the ball changes and no one even knows um, that's just like the definition of randomness. And well, that literally happened in hockey though. No, cause they, they had to recall the, the pucks with the tracking chips in them because players were feeling like it was leading to weird bounces. They did, uh, that we had the situation to start last year where the expected goals, uh, or, or the shot locations weren't even being tracked properly for a month. So there's a lot of stuff that, that goes into it. And then, and then you 
the randomness of officiating for an NHL game is don't even get me started. That's just like, I I've really been digging deep into to referees this season and, and officials. Um, and yeah, there's just, there's so much randomness there as well, but I tell people the same thing all the time, right? If you're betting, uh, into a, a sports betting market, you don't have to be able to, to assign perfect probabilities to every game. The goal is just to be able to do it better than everyone else who's doing it. Uh, because it's, it's not going to ever be a perfectly efficient market. You just have to create better numbers and get closer to the true probabilities, um, than anyone else. So yeah, there's a lot of randomness, a lot of volatility. Sometimes it actually works in your favor, but, uh, Oh, this year, man, I, I gotta tell you, it's been, it's taken, it's actually taken years off my life. Like I can, I can actually say I've probably lost two to three years of life, ex- life expectancy from hockey this season. Yeah, your expected, hockey. expected years lived is uh, yeah. is decreasing by the, by the day. Yeah, I think that's a good way to view it. Uh, not being so preoccupied with being right, but just being like less wrong. Uh, I, I think will go a long way in this league. Um, you said, "Don't get me started on officiating." I actually do want to get you started on officiating, though, because uh, you know we're a bit obviously late on this. It's not as topical. It's been a couple of weeks since the Tim Peel incident, and. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I am curious for your thoughts on it though, from, from the gambling perspective, because especially when you see people like Elliot Friedman going on national TV and talking about how, uh, you know, the consequences of this and the effect of it and, and kind of having a conversation about it from that lens. Um, I do think it it's, it's worth exploring more because, uh, it's similar to the rest thing. I think it's something that the casual fan probably like they yell about how their team isn't getting calls, but they ultimately don't want to get too bogged down in the details of which officials hate their teams. And, uh, you know, the, the, the data that tells us that certain officials call certain things more so than others. Um, but obviously it does have a very big effect, especially because, you know, for the most part, you'd like to think that, all right, if something random is happening, we can kind of hope that over a long period of time, it's going to even out and everyone's going to be affected in it in the same way. Right. If they are exposed to it enough times, but in this case, I do think with the way the league goes about uh, officiating, it's pretty clear that skill teams generally get the short end of the stick more often than not because of what they're letting go. And so it's not necessarily an even playing field when you're incentivizing certain things versus punishing others. So I don't know. I, I think it really is an important topic. It, it is. I mean, for one, um, especially with you know s- sports betting regulation starting to happen in Canada or being close to happening and, and it happening in the U S the, the biggest thing that's been talked about and anyone who's against the, um, the legalization of sports betting would talk about the integrity of the game, right? We, the game needs to maintain its integrity. Um, the reality is it's kind of a joke because none of the games are really at risk of, of losing integrity. There's, there's sufficient, um, systems in place to catch anything that is, um, uh, you know, raises alarm bells, so to speak. But whenever you have someone like Tim Peel talking about specifically giving a penalty, wanting to give a penalty to one specific team, uh, it then raises, raises those questions. And the reality is, I think we kind of all knew that that happens in hockey, just in general. Um, I I've always felt that the NHL kind of wants that in the product things to be balanced, not to have, this large discrepancy between teams in general and for the games to be officiated in that manner. I joked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, but I can't remember who, again, I'll bring up a Leafs example, but I can't remember who Leafs were playing in overtime, but they had, they had just uh, had a power play, got killed off. And then Austin Matthews got checked 
cross-check from behind into the board. It was the Jets game, man. The Jets game, right? And that's like a clear as day penalty, but it's never going to be called. Um, but the reality is that I think it's pretty consistent the way that like the, there's been consistency in the inconsistency of officiating for a long enough time now that you kind of know what you're going to get. Uh, and you know that going into the playoffs, the game's going to get called a lot tighter down the stretch and especially into the playoffs last year, uh, playoffs coming up this year. Um, so I, you know, I, I'm not, I didn't like seeing that a ref had like a predetermined outcome in his head. And I'm sure a lot of people didn't like seeing that in general, but the reality is that this happens. Like we all know it happens. It's, it's affecting the games, but it's, it's not like, I don't think there's anything happening in major North American sports right now where referee just has like a personal vendetta against the team and is really trying to sabotage the game uh, all around. No, I, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, and it's clear that this isn't like a rogue referee deciding to take the outcome of a game into their own hands. Like this is something right. that they're empowered by the league to do and probably told to, to officiate a certain way, especially come the postseason. I think the reason why I take issue with it is, and maybe this is just me being a nerd and I should just enjoy the, the entertainment and the drama of it. And I do in a, in a sense, especially for the postseason, because I acknowledge that if you really wanted to f- properly determine who the best team is, you would just hand out a regular season trophy after 82 games. You wouldn't roll the dice on a seven game sample. And if a goalie gets hot, that team is all of a sudden better for some reason. Uh, and we place such an emphasis on it in North American sports, but it does bug me that there's two different, uh, you know, circumstances basically between the regular season and the postseason. And I don't feel like we're doing a good enough job of actually trying to determine who the best team is. If you're, incentivizing people to essentially break the rules as often as they can and punishing teams that have a lot of skilled, high offensively uh, gifted players. I completely agree with that. I'll, I'll take it a step further, but, uh, and I, and I completely understand why this is happening this year because of the COVID landscape. So, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I, I completely agree with this, what's happening here this year, but the North division, as an example, gets their entire one set of referees right. that the rest of the league does not see. I don't really want to talk about how they specifically officiate the game just in general, because there's a little bit of an edge I have there on betting totals and things of that nature. But, <laughs> yeah. but the reality is that the North division is officiated very differently from the rest of the league this year. I'm not saying this is a, a Leafs fan. It's just, it's just a, a fact that the, the way that division is officiated is, is a lot different. And yeah, we're, we're working towards trying to crown who the best team is ho- in hockey is this year. One quarter of the league is playing essentially under their own rules. Yeah. I, I learned that very early on in the year. And that was the biggest struggle for me, not only specifically offici- uh, related to officials, but essentially I've had to treat the league this season as if it's four different leagues instead of one. Because if you are using data across the entire league and having those be your kind of your averages, you're going to get into some real problems because these teams are only playing within their divisions up and down. Um, If you think, for example, scoring is a certain uh, average across the entire league, well, that's because the North division is the only division in the league above average and the other three are below average as a, as a total. Um, So, and, and that's the same with officials. The reality is there's nothing really fair about sports. Like this could be a completely different rant for, but like, we're not trying to make things as fair as possible. 
Um, you, you look at the schedule that gets released every single year. There's always going to get be a team that gets screwed on back-to-backs. Like they're playing a lot more. There's been times where teams are playing double the amount of back-to-backs as another team in the league. I mean, that's not fair, but we have to figure out a way to fit things into schedule and the arenas are booked for concerts and things of that nature. So, uh, and the same is going to happen with officiating. Like we're never going to get to a standard that is completely consistent across the entire league. I think that's kind of what makes sports interesting in a sense as well. So, um, I've gone off on a complete tangent. I don't even remember what we were talking well, about. No, I do. I do think it is interesting. I think, you know, not that I like someone like myself, for example, is necessarily invested because ultimately it doesn't like I can make a prediction on who I think is going to win a playoff series and that team can get jobbed and lose. And the fans of the team that I picked to lose might, you know, tweet at me and be like, ha you're an idiot. Why'd you pick against our team? But ultimately it's like inconsequential. I think right. for people working for teams though, uh, if your job is on the line based on how far you advance in the postseason and you lose because uh, of sh- shenanigans, you know, you, mm-hmm. it's very rare that like a, a, a full playoff series is determined just based on officiating because there's a lot of elements that go into play. But sometimes these series are so tight and there's a bunch of one goal games, especially if you get into overtime and it's like, yeah, the 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 margin here or there could ultimately be the difference and it could mean you either having a job next season or not. And, and that's a very... Uh, you know, that's something to take seriously. And I think that with the money involved, like it's about time the league does take it more seriously. I I think it's the game within the game. Um, I'll be lying to you. If I I said, I haven't thought about being an NHL head coach or general manager uh, in my head several times, but like one, one example I think of is last year, I'm going to, I'm going to point to another example of a Toronto Maple Leafs uh, example, because (laughs) I mean, I live and breathe the Leafs, but uh, Leafs lost to Columbus in a five-game series last year in the playoffs. I personally thought that the Leafs got absolutely hosed in that series uh, from an officiating point of view in that basically they let everything go. The series played on as if there was no holds barred. And that really favored Columbus, who is not a, necessarily a skilled team. They're more yep. of a scrappy team. They fit that prototypical mold of a playoff team, a lot of grinders in general, whereas the Leafs are skill and a skill team and they require open ice to make things happen. Uh, and there was a lot of holding, a lot of clutching and grabbing, nothing happened. I, I, I think it was a miss by Sheldon Keefe not to address that post game in any situation um, and bring it up. And we've seen this happen in sports in general, um, not just the NHL, but where coaches bring, bring it up and it tends to potentially, you know, turn the series in their favor every now and then. It could backfire and work against them, but like, I, I you know, it, it's we we know what we're going to get out of postseason hockey, right? At some point, team that takes the first couple penalties of the game, they're very likely going to get the next call in their favor. Uh, to the point where you know, if 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 you do get two early power plays in a game, the coach has got to be on the bench and say, tell tell his guys like, listen, we know what's going to happen here, right? You guys are really going to have to be careful finishing your checks. Like, don't finish anything up high the next call is coming against against us. Um, and that's not to say that you can really influence the outcome because maybe, yeah, maybe the ref has a, some sort of predetermined notion of I'm going to make the next call against this team. But if that happens and it's a weak call, your post-game interview, you, you, your presser, you go off. You say, I told the guys on the bench, I knew, what the, I knew this was coming. They were going to look for an excuse to do this and you're going to get hit with a fine and the league's not going to like it. But I mean, that's that that would be me if I was in in a coaching situation Another tangent. I'm sorry, Dimitri, well, for hijacking your your podcast here, but I'm just like, 
that's my my thoughts on officiating. Is we we know what's going to happen for the most part. We just it's just been widely accepted as all right. This is the way it's going to be. No, well that's that's fair. I do think um, you know when you put together the combination of the uh, idea of makeup calls and uh, the human element of referees having egos. I think it can sometimes be scary and maybe uh, cause players and coaches to, uh, you know, tread lightly or, or, or not voice their concerns because I, I know of countless examples I've heard of where, uh, you know, not as obvious as like the Alex Burroughs one from back in the day where um, he called like the referee got pissed off that he caught him diving and he basically told him that he was going to screw him over. But yep. there's countless examples of, of I've heard, you know, real stories from uh, personal accounts of, you know, a player, complaining about something to a referee. And then the next time down the ice, the referees just like got tunnel vision for this player making one small little infraction and it's two minutes to the box. And, yep. uh, you know, that would be, uh, technically as an even playing field because everyone is treated the same way. It's not like, well, the referee just hates that one person is going to treat them differently, but it does probably make everyone kind of think carefully about, you know, voicing those concerns. There's always going to be inherent biases as well. You know, you, you, you ref a game where, uh, Brad Marchand dives as an example, that's going to stick in your head the next time you ref one of his games. Um, and, and that's just going to happen across all of, of pro sports. But uh, listen, officiating is a tough job. Um, I, when I was younger, I used to officiate in a football league. You, you, no one's ever coming over to you after the game and saying, you know, great job. You yeah. really ref that fairly. Like it doesn't happen. So I completely get it. Um, the, the biggest issue I have with officiating in sports is there's really no accountability. Like until the, the Tim Peel situation here, it's not like the refs have to sit uh, at the podium after the game and answer questions from reporters. Like you look at major league baseball, the umpires union, like that, that's the best union on the planet. Like they, they could, uh, an umpire could literally just ring up guys, how, you, ump a game, however they want to, and there's zero accountability. Nothing will happen after the fact. Like Joe West, Angel Hernandez, these guys, they will die as umpires, essentially, if they want to, because there's, and, and this is just the situation across major sports. And I think that's the biggest problem. It's like, as a fan, as a better, I'd like to hear answers from a referee. And if the referee sits, sits there after the game and says, I made a mistake, this is what I saw when I was watching the play. I mean, I have a lot more respect for the, difficulty of that um that job than i would if it's just like dead silence and i'm I'm stewing for an entire night because you know like a guy missed a, a obvious penalty in overtime and i end up losing yeah. an overtime game so that's basically what the nba does with their two-minute report or whatever right yeah it yes and no like it's the two-minute report but it's still it still feels like a cop-out right a little bit at least, right. at least well, it's coming from the, it's coming from the league, right? Like it's right. a kind of basically like a, a public performance review in a way. Right. And I don't, I don't watch a ton of basketball anymore, but I'm sure like, I'd feel fairly confident in saying that there's no uh, dismissals coming to NBA referees based off those. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. 
Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Sports. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's more for a PR thing than it is uh, referee performance. I would say I could be wrong on that. I'm not educated enough to talk on that, but yeah, there's like every job has some sort of performance review. Like unless you're working for yourself, you're working for co- big companies, they hold annual performance reviews. I mean, if, if, if things aren't going, you know, properly and you're bad at your job, they're going to give you a few months to turn it around or else see you later. You're out the door, but this just doesn't happen in, in professional sports for officiating. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, uh yeah. all right. Well, let's take a quick break here. We're going to hear from a sponsor and then we're going to finish up on the other end of things. All right. Um, so that's enough about officiating. I don't know. Is there any other stuff that we wanted to touch on in terms of the NHL embracing gambling? Like I, it's been interesting to me watching these broadcasts because I remember like you and I did a, a show while I was in Toronto a couple of years ago. And it was like when the league for really started partnering up uh, with certain companies and, and, and really kind of dipping their toes into it. But now watching these like local broadcasts and I think like the avalanche one is one of the more egregious ones for me. And I've obviously been watching a lot of avalanche games this year because they're remarkably fun to watch, but they're just like, you've got these uh, commentators just like talking about, Oh, if you know, uh, the over under for this period on a Tuesday goal with goals coming from the left circle by players with numbers 22 to 35. If you hit that total, this is a good number. And it's like, uh, I understand that like, you know, they're, they're probably like contractually obligated because it's a sponsor. Um, but, uh, it feels like we still have a long way to go in terms of intelligently talking about this stuff on, on broadcasts. I would go as far as calling it an epidemic from my point of view. Um, it infuriates me as a, a sports better to see a lot of this stuff on the broadcast. I think it's good. I mean, in general that people are embracing sports gambling and it's kind of like losing that taboo feel, but, oh, it's, it's infuriating. And, uh, you know, I saw this in the U S specifically, um, very quickly when, when New Jersey started legalizing sports wagering and it just becomes a rush to market from everyone. Right. Uh, everyone needs to talk about it. It's the thing um, rather than going out and hiring professionals in the sports betting space, a lot of media personalities who would just typically be uh, covering their sport have now been asked to talk about betting without really understanding things. Uh, and I think what compounds it even more is that there's so much misinformation out there uh, by companies that are really good with search engine optimization. As an example, um, you know, you can't really Google answers to sports betting questions without getting a bunch of garbage right now. Cause it's that space is dominated. Uh, front page of Google is dominated by, um, companies that do really well with search. So 
it, it's it's a real problem. Um, it's not a problem for the sports books. I'll tell you that because they're obviously getting a lot of publicity and they're attracting a lot of betters who are um, going to place wagers on things that, frankly, are just very poor expected value in the long run. Um, I'll, I'll give an example, but uh, and this is no disrespect to Mike Johnson. I actually think he's a really good hockey analyst. I yeah, say that's he's years. great. Yeah, yeah. I, I say that in all sincerity. But he's been asked to do. Uh, some sort of gambling segment for TSN whenever he's on the broadcast in Canada um, and give out picks. And the reality is that I'm fine with anyone giving out picks. I think it should just be um, painted in a recreational light by the media company. Um, Whereas this is just for fun rather than selling people on why this is a good bet when it's not uh, type of situation. Like I remember tuning into a pregame of a, a Leafs game where uh, he took Zach Hyman to score a third period goal at five to one or something along those lines where like it should honestly be priced at like 20 to one, something higher than that. Yeah. Um, but with like a one minute segment on why this is a good bet. And that's where I have an issue with it because there's going to be a lot of people that tune into that space and just will follow anyone um, what anyone tells them on on TV or radio or whatever it might be. Um, well, there's two things branching out there. So one, um, I kind of, I, I feel bad for analysts that are put in that position because, um, you know, I can't speak for MJ, but I'm sure he would tell you that he is under no uh, circumstances telling people that they should go and bet on Zach Ivan to score a third period goal, even though like he's doing a segment on it. Like he's, he's just, he's being asked to talk about it. I would, I would frame it more in the perspective of like, this is analysis. Like, why do you think Zach Hyman is going to score? But TV doesn't lend itself to that as a medium because you have a 60 second hit and then it's like off the commercial. Right. And I, I've done like when I was with sports and I was, I'd be on TV and, and they're like, all right, let's talk about analytics for 90 seconds here. And it's like, this is like a 60 minute podcast that I do. And, and, you know, you could probably relate to this as someone who does like hour long periscopes about football games. It's like, if you were asked to condense it into a one minute thing, you'd probably wind up looking like an idiot because stuff would get taken out of context because you can't properly explain the nuance of it. Yeah. I mean, I completely get the reasons for it, Dimitri. Like it's, um, I understand why it's happening. I mean, there's a lot of sponsorship dollars that are coming from sports books in general. Um, so obviously they, they want to, they want that ad money to go to be put to good use. And that's going to be, to get people to bet on sports in this specific case, hockey, the reality is that problem gaming is a, is a huge issue and will continue to be a huge issue for many years. Um, and, and my issue is when, um, the media companies will, will pass someone off as an ex, you could be an expert in hockey and breaking down the game. That's not the same as being an expert in betting on hockey. Yep. And, and it's a, a very slippery slope and dangerous situation where, I'll use Bob McKenzie as an example because everyone in the world loves Bob McKenzie. Mm -hmm. Like he's impossible to hate. People really respect everything he says. He's an insider. He's he's viewed in that light. If all of a sudden Bob McKenzie starts giving out picks on people are going to follow those picks, whether we we, we laugh about this as we can see each other right now, but yeah. And, and there's going to be a small percentage of people that are going to follow those those picks for more than they can afford to follow. So this is where it becomes a slippery slope. And I think there needs to be more education in the space around Hockley betting, rather than just firing out the odds that are available, giving out picks. Um, 
And I don't know that anyone's going to want to do that because it's costly to run marketing campaigns around betting responsibly and things of that nature. Uh, but that's kind of where I see it headed. And if, if there's going to be any blowback to all this legalization of, of sports wagering, it's going to be f- from stories about people losing their lives and their houses and their, you know, their kids' college funds and things of that nature um, because they watched a game and some guy was telling them that these were good odds or good picks. And, um, and, and like, that's going to be a really unfortunate scenario. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, the reason why I was laughing is because it's like so ridiculous to me that someone would do so. But then, yeah, your average Joe that's, you know, working a nine to five and comes home and turns on the TV and sees a face he recognizes telling him to do something. It's like, it's why people buy stuff off of infomercials and stuff. It's like, I've done that before. Like I can personally speak to experience, but when I was younger, hey, I you're, you're using your shake weight right now. I can see you. <laughs> I, I I've bought picks from perf- like snake oil salesmen, essentially um, touts people who can't make a, make a living betting on sports. So they sell their picks to others and they pass themselves off as long-term winners. I lost a lot of money when I was younger. I mean, I, I built up gambling debts till I was in, you know, second year university that unfortunately I had to pay off over the course of time. But like I, I've lived through that experience. So maybe it hits home with me a little bit more than others. Um, and that was at a time where I was personally seeking that stuff out rather than it just being directly bombarded into my face uh, on a daily basis. So um, I do think I, if I could if I could ask for one thing in the um, in this sports betting merging into hockey, it would be for major networks to go after like real betters and try to turn them into media personalities rather than the opposite way around. Um, I don't know that it'll, that'll ever happen because it's also going to come at a cost, right? Like it's very hard to get a professional better to go on TV and, um, and give their side of things and give valuable insight. It's, you're not going to get a whole lot of that. Even the media that I do in general, you know, I toe the line with what I say and what I don't, cause I don't want to give away my edge, but there is a happy medium there where you can give away enough good information to the public, not misinform them. And I think most importantly, completely steer away from the, just giving out picks like that's not doing anybody any favors in general in the long run. Well, yeah. Like I think I would hope people could tell from listening. There's like you and I had, when we're talking about like matchup effects and fatigue, like I think there's a a certain level of intellectual curiosity where we're like, we just want to talk about it because we don't necessarily have an answer. We have a hypothesis about it. And now it's, you're right. Entirely different. You should be asking yourself like, what does this person have to gain from giving out these picks because if they were so good, why aren't they just exclusively making them themselves? And I think that that is a slippery slope, I guess. What's, what do you feel like has been the effect on, on, on the market in terms of, uh, you know, I'd imagine more casual hockey betters. Like, do you, do you think it does create more of a, a competitive advantage for like the quote unquote early adopters who actually know what they're doing or, does it lead to, or like you were saying, the amount of misinformation uh, just kind of bugs you because it, it can, you know, the blowback, but also it's just kind of like a dangerous thing to be walking into. Um, my hypothesis on, on this a couple of years ago was very wrong as well, which is, a, I guess, a common theme of this, uh, this pod today. But uh, I, I thought that it would help me um, as an established sports better, getting a lot more casual betters into the space that don't really know what they're doing. 
um, would be good for business. But the reality is that there are so many eyes on the space now that yes, there are a lot more recreational and casual sports betters, but it's attracted a lot of smarter people into the space as well. Um, and what I've noticed across all major sports, including hockey, um, is how competitive the, the overnight markets are now. Um, so just, just for someone who doesn't understand, I'll describe it really quickly, but a, a sports book will post odds on an NHL game, usually the day before the game, but they'll post it with very low limits, um, up to maybe 500 bucks at, at, at a, a high, high end sports book. Um, because they don't really have much confidence in the numbers that they're putting out. They're going to put out a number. They're going to wait for people to bet it. They've already profiled people who are betting into their sports book over, over the course of time. And they know who their good betters are and who their poor betters are. And they're going to move the price based off of that early action. And as time goes on over the course of the day, they're going to start increasing their limits a little bit more and a little bit more to the point where Usually overnight, you can probably get up to a thousand, maybe some sports books, a couple thousand dollars, depending on the book. For me, I'm, I'm making a living off of betting sports. That's not enough of a bet for me to, to be able to make a living. So I'm reliant on waking up the next morning to bet hockey. And at around nine o'clock, limits start to get raised at all the sports books because they're now confident enough in their ability to set a number that they're willing to take a larger bet. That's typically when I would bet three or four years ago, I'd wake up in the morning. I could almost bet the entire board in some cases, or at least half of it, I would say where I'd have an edge. Now what's happening is there's a flood of people into this space. Some of them are very good at what they're doing, but they're betting overnight and they're giving the, the sports book a lot more information early on. Um, and allowing the sports book to sharpen their number. So limits come off in the morning at 9 a.m. And I might only have two or three plays on some days. This morning, I didn't have a single play. Um, so it's kind of hurt my volume in general. Um, and this is this is happening across all major sports right now. But it's interesting you bring that up because I, I would think like, you know, hockey is so... Uh, subjected to the volatility of which goalie is starting for a team. Like if you're getting in on a line for the avalanche thinking it's be Philip Grubauer, and then it turns out it's Jonas Johansson, you're kind of screwed as, as our friend Dom who loves to, to tweet out oh, his, yeah. uh, his trials and tribulations with trying to pick which starting goalie is going to be like, I think like, what is it Vegas this year? That's kind of publicly been like, we're not going to tell you who's starting until you see them coming Vegas. out for the game. And LA, uh, the Kings as well are another one where you don't know if it's Peterson or quick until warmups, right? Which They're on a rotation. They're on a rotation. So, I mean, you can you kind, kind of, of know, yeah. but, um, the, the, re, the, the challenge with that, Dimitri is that, uh, I can think back to, you know, three, four, five years ago, there was a lot more, um, larger discrepancies between the starting goalie and backup goalie across the league. Whereas now there's still a few. I can think of a bunch off the top of my head. You pointed out a great one. Vasilevsky, McElhaney is obviously a huge one as well, but there's not enough that warrant a difference to having to wait on a bet. Um, and in some cases, you know, I know people who blend their goalie numbers. So they'll say this goalie has a, I'm giving this guy 75% chance to start. I'm giving this guy 25% chance to start. And they'll just kind of 
blend it and wait one, three quarters, one, one quarter. I know guys that'll just wait completely. And because they want to have all the information available to them, there's no right or wrong approach, but um, at those limits, it's really like, and then I, I guess one other thing I should point out as well, in theory, theoretically, even if you're betting early, the change in goalie should work in your favor just as often as it works against you. Right. So why do you, do you feel like that line's being set with the, like leaving the door open to either goalie starting? Yeah. In a lot of cases, I, I think, like I said, it just, it doesn't matter anymore. Right. Um, you know, maybe Dom would disagree with me. I, I, I tend to notice that he has much larger discrepancies with his goalies. And we, we've talked about how we do goalies and, and I don't think any, anyone has the, the answer to how to do goalies just in general. Um, whereas he'll have, you know, some much larger discrepancies between some of the guys, but yeah, just think about it across the league. There's only like a handful of situations right now where you'd be in a really rough spot if you bet, um, on one team and the backup ended up starting, um, or vice versa, you bet on the backup and, or or bet against the team that you thought the starter was starting the backup started. There's some situations where I actually have the backup as an upgrade over the starter. Um, so the, the reality is, um, because of the amount of competition in the space for early markets. Now you're just not even afforded the the ability to kind of wait. Um, you could be one of those people that just is playing injury news. I know guys like that in general, who are just monitoring every beat writer over the course of an entire day. As soon as they see something, they immediately bet. That's fine. It's really hard to do in general because the market is so quick now at NHL. If Vasilevsky is not starting and it's McElhaney, you have about 15 seconds to make a bet. Do you, do you feel like that uh, the, the tightening of those lines or, or the market being on top of it has also um, translated to evaluations of teams? Be- because I think hockey in general is so behind in terms of adapting to new information. Like we think of teams as being good or not or boring or exciting and it takes them so long to shed those labels. Right. And especially, um, for teams that, especially in, in the case of like a team has been really good for a long time, I think generally you think of them as being better than they are for probably definitely for like in season, but maybe even a year or two beyond just because of the rep of the players they have. If the, if those players still on, are on the team. I would wholeheartedly agree with that. I think almost everyone who bets hockey and is using larger samples and timeframes. Um, I, I know Dom probably wanted to pull his hair out, betting the blues for about a month early on in the season yeah. when it was you know pretty evident that their team metrics were just not as good as they had been. I mean, last year they kind of went downhill as well. Um, it was really two years ago that they were an, an elite team, but um it takes time for the models to kind of catch up to that. So you can explore using a shorter time frame. That brings with it another set of problems altogether. So it's kind of finding that sweet spot in general of how far back am I willing to go? Goalies is another situation where it's like, you can clearly watch a goalie and say, I mean, this guy's feel like Pecorine to start the year. Yeah, I think Pecorine is a horrible goalie. He was playing really well to start the year and, and Soros was like couldn't stop a beach ball um, to the point where I guess, depending on 
what sample of data you're using with your model, either you might have thought it's being very slow to react to Soros's dip in performance, or you like you might have got to a point where I did, where you wake up one morning and you're running your numbers with Rene and Soros, and you're like, "There's no way Nashville has a better chance to win this game with with Pekka Rene today." Uh, oh. Like, I, but maybe they did. Like, it's um, it, it's it's very 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 difficult to get those time frames right. Well, so what, like, what are you doing with Mike Smith this season? That's a good question. Because <laughs> um, I, I think I think well, generally most fans have brought like I. Mike Smith hasn't, hasn't been good for a while, right? Uh, he has a rep of being good because he gets out and he plays the puck as if that's like a very important thing. Um, he's been much better than I gave him credit for this season. Like just by, by any metric, I expected him to be like, he was like a, a sub 900 goalie, I think last year. And he's been like league average, maybe even slightly above, obviously prone to horrible performances as he had against Calgary the other night. But uh, for the most part, significantly better than, than you would have expected, but you watch him and you're like, how is this happening for the guy who's almost 40 years old and has sucked for a few years now? I have 80 goalies, uh, in my database right now. And I have Mike Smith, 26th out of the 80. Yeah. Um, just to put that in, like I have Miko Koskin in 32nd. Mm-hmm. So um, I actually don't view that as much of a gap at all. Like it would, it was never Edmonton games. I could pretty much always trust the number, like just go off of it. Cause if, if Koskinen gets confirmed to me, it's not even really a big difference at all. Uh, I think some Oilers fans, if they heard this right now would actually call me insane based off the performance this year. Right. Yeah. Cause Koskinen really struggled in the early going and, and well, he was playing is, too much and then Smith was out and then Smith had some good games. Yeah. So I, I, there, I, I mean, that's one of the the real challenges with hockey in general is, you know, I still watch games. I barely watch games that I bet on, but I still watch a lot of games. And um, the it's you you see things with your eyes that maybe don't match what your model's telling you, and you don't know what which of the two is right. And it's um, you, you'll wrestle with that quite a bit. And believe me, I I certainly have wrestled with that quite a bit at at points this year where I'm just watching something and I'm like, you know, either my model's not catching up to this quick enough or, you know, it's not right, but it's, it can be help. It's weird to say this. It can be healthy and unhealthy, but I think it's healthy to like constantly to look at these things unhealthy. If, if you agonize over them, uh, you know, just from a functional perspective, I'm curious for your take here. Is there a team that you feel like is either generally undervalued or overvalued right now as we head towards the, uh, the final stages of the season? I can give you um, one to get us started. Go for it. So the Rangers are interesting because I would imagine they're probably a pretty public team. Like they're the New York Rangers. Uh, they have a, a massive fan base. Um, they're 19, 16, and 6 this year. They are of identical games played in points with the Philadelphia Flyers in their division. They have a plus 22 goal differential. The Philadelphia Flyers have a minus 23 goal differential. Now that's obviously inflated by a nine, nothing and an eight, three game that they played against each other recently. So both of those figures are probably slightly higher and slightly lower in Philadelphia's case than is like a true talent evaluation, but you know, good teams generally have these eruption performances more often than not more than bad teams, at least. And like, I always think about, uh, you know, like Bill Barnwell does his annual Pythagorean, um, win projections for teams to identify regression candidates. Right. And I'd imagine if you just compare the Rangers statistical profile, you'd be like, how the hell is this a 1916 and 16 team? 
Now they're obviously not like a dominant five on five team by any means. Artemi Panarin missed 11 games there. I think uh, Shesterkin has played 23 of 41 games. I have him down for. So, you know, they've had a, a bumpy season, but it seems like when you compare those two things for me, that's a candidate where I'm like, what is, what's going on here? Like, it feels like they should have a better record than they do. Yes. Um, so I agree with you that they should have a better record than they do in general. I will say that the market does not undervalue the Rangers though. Mm. So there, there's a, a site that I'll plug. I have no association with the site in general, but I think it's just generally good. If, if you don't understand like um, how the market values teams in general, there's a site called Inpredictable, um, which kind of is just an algorithm that um, shows how the market is projecting teams. Now, this year is a little bit more difficult to do so because we have these individual divisions. Teams don't play each other. So they've kind of separated it out by division. But last week, the betting market valued the New York Rangers higher than the Washington Capitals. Mm. So if the Rangers and Capitals played on neutral ice, the betting market would have made the Rangers favorite. A lot of people will scratch their heads at that yeah. in general. I have the Rangers as a borderline top 10 team in hockey right now. Yeah. Um, just looking at my numbers in general, but it, it goes to show like a team like that, uh, where the Rangers, you might've been able to find value on them. Like, four or five weeks ago, but it's quickly snatched up to the point where I would almost make the argument now that maybe the market is overvaluing the Rangers uh, just a little bit. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I have them down for a stat that I really like. Obviously it's got uh, contextual issues, but like percentage of time you spend leading, I think is a stat that people should be paying attention to more. Cause I think, you know, if you sort by it, it seems like the top teams are Colorado, Tampa Bay, Toronto, Vegas, in that order. It's like, all right, that makes sense. I think the top 15 teams are all playoff teams, except for New York, who are ninth in that stat. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I I, I just, I, I wonder, you know, for them, it's a pretty tricky spot because they're four points back of the Bruins. They've, Bruins have two games in hand on them. The Bruins have a ton of games here against the Sabres. They also got, I think markedly better at the deadline by acquiring both Taylor Hall and, and Mike Riley. And so for the Rangers, I know they have two games left against the Bruins and they themselves have a bunch of games against the Devils and the Sabres, but it seems like a pretty uphill battle. And, and I'm kind of curious because I wish uh, I think they're better than the record's been, but um, I'm not sure like functionally how much that's going to matter in this final month. Yeah. I, I mean, it's funny you bring up the Bruins because to me, I, I don't want to say the Bruins are over undervalued right now, the Bruins are like, they make, they make good deals at the deadline. They're going to get Tuka Rask back. They're going to get Charlie McAvoy back today. If not this week, they're going to be a pretty good team again on paper. And it's a, it's an interesting one because their, their peripherals have kind of just gone off a cliff over the last month and a half. Expected goals, Corsi, whatever, you know, high danger scoring chances, whatever you want to look at. They're an older team. They're, they're, they're best players. You know, Bergeron, Marchand are older guys. You wonder how much of that schedule is having an impact. You wonder how much of them not having played the Sabres much this season has had an impact on what we think of Boston. But to me, down the stretch... I, w I mean, I don't want to say I wish they hadn't traded for Taylor Hall, but I think 
even without getting Taylor Hall back, they would probably be a team primed to make a run down the stretch. I wouldn't want to play Boston in the playoffs necessarily if if you're anyone in that division. Um, so to me, I, th- I think you'll probably find some value on them going forwards. But um, just in general, if if I can speak to what I see in the betting market is there's been this natural gravitation towards expected goals. This is not something new. It's been happening over the course of, course of years, but people talk with so much certainty around the public expected goals models. Washington is a fluke. Washington's so fluky. I can't believe they win games. And this is, I, I hear that quite a lot from my friends who bet on hockey and they're very immersed in. I'm not convinced that Washington is a fluke in general, because this is now going on. I don't know what, like five, six, seven years where their peripherals are just not great. And they end up being a really good team. Um, And teams have so much more sophisticated data to work with, with the sports logic data that they're using versus what's publicly available that I think teams like that in market are consistently getting undervalued. So Washington is one and Winnipeg would be the other. Cause if you look at Winnipeg in general, they get faded. Like almost every time a Winnipeg line comes out, the other team gets bet. And that's likely because whoever's betting it is looking at these public expected goals models. And they're like Winnipeg, like this should be a bottom team in the league, but they have some pretty high end talent at forward for one. And they have the second best goalie in the world. Yep which plays into it as well. So uh, I think Washington and Winnipeg are teams for me that I consistently see the market fade and have pretty much been getting them wrong for the entire year. It's interesting that you bring that up because I do feel like on the one hand, publicly or just generally hockey overvalues shooting ability because I do think you have to acknowledge that there's from one year to another, a certain level of randomness where a great player can just have a 7% shooting season. And it doesn't necessarily mean they suck. And the next year they're going to bounce back to let's say 13, 14%. Right. And that's obviously a huge swing over an 82 game sample. On the other hand, I do think we also underrate team wide finishing ability. Like the, the capitals are a great example. And mostly because publicly we don't really, unless you're looking at like Corey Snyder's work, um, tracking this stuff, we don't have like rush data, for example. And I think the capitals are like, they get the highest percentage of your offense off the rush. And when you combine that with elite shooters, um, you're going to score significantly more goals than we can probably account for with expected goals models, because they're just not properly calibrating how likely that shot actually was to go in from the player that was taking it. Yeah, I think I, uh, I would agree with that in general. I, I, there, there's the realities. We have so much more to learn. Um, I mean, there's been advancements every year. Like we, we kind of get better and better, but, um, yeah, I, I think just generally what I've seen is people will use the public expected goal stuff, evolving hockey, money puck, natural stat trick, as if it's just like, this is the be all and end all we've kind of gone from one extreme where it's like these analytics don't matter. Like Corsi, like, what are you talking about? This is garbage to complete opposite now where it's like the actual results don't matter anymore. It's like, let's just look at all this underlying data. And the reality is we should have settled somewhere in the middle. Right. I still think generally, if you're looking at expected goals over actual goals scored, you're probably going to be on a better 
path, like generally speaking, but I think there are specific examples of both players and teams that just annually are on either end of extreme. And that's probably for a reason. I, I completely agree with that. Like if you are just blindly betting expected goals, like you're pretty much going to always be betting on the same teams and against the same teams. And your season is going to come down to quite literally a half dozen teams performance because you're going to bet on Montreal every single game. You're going to bet against Winnipeg every single game. You're going to bet against Washington every single game. Like there's just a number of teams that um, they're for some reason or another, Carolina would have been another one for several years uh, where you would have just been betting on them all the time. And these aren't teams that, like you mentioned, it's just like out of nowhere this year that this is some sort of phenomenon that's happening with them. This has been consistent for two seasons, three seasons, four seasons, even longer than that in some cases. So I think there's something there that's just being missed right now in the data that we have to work with very likely the pass before the shot um, um, or the, the entire sequence before the shot will lend some light to that because Montreal to me doesn't, you know, they, they don't profile as a team when I watch them that is moving the puck laterally a whole lot cross ice getting goalies in bad positions carolina was never that team either a lot of it was get it to the net hack away in front of the net uh, they'd have a lot of their chances in close but the goalie was in position uh type of thing so um yeah i mean that's where i see overvalued and undervalued teams the team that's very interesting for me um because they've been very good to me this year dom might proclaim himself as the number one minnesota wild fan but i, I might want to take that honor from him um They've kind of fallen off a cliff hmm. in the last three or four weeks. But Felino was out, Bukestad's out, Fiala missed, I think maybe only one game. There was some other, Parise was a healthy scratch mm-hmm. uh, for, for a bit in there. So they've definitely had some issues with forward depth. I'm very interested to see if they're going to rebound off that or if that early start was just sort of a flash in the pan uh, type of thing. But Cam Talbot is had a good year. Like I look at them on paper. I don't love them, but they're deep. Like they kind of remind me of Montreal a little, a little bit and that they don't have like a lot of uh, superb talent, but it's a pretty deep roster. That's a team I'm, I'm very interested in seeing for the last month of the year, because if they do get back to the form that they were in, the wild could upset the Knights in the first round. They could, I think, Carolina, you bringing them up was interesting to me because, you know, they seem like they're on a collision course with Tampa Bay, uh, probably in the second round of, of that central division, uh, playoff schedule. And I don't know how many people are going to pick them to win that series. And I personally don't know that I would either, uh, especially if Kucherov comes back and, and is healthy and you just plug him into that lineup and they stay healthy with the addition of David Savard now as well. But I, I, you know, for years, Carolina was that team where they wouldn't turn those shots into goals because I think there was a lack of offensive creativity or even talent where they had kind of good grinding players, but they couldn't, you, 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 if you were just going based off expected goals, you would be led uh, down a dangerous path because they yeah. weren't as likely to score as a team like Washington. But now they've got Natchez playing a big role. If Tara Linen comes back, they've got Aho. They legitimately have that lateral cross ice passing more than they have in the past. I think, I wonder if they still have the top power play. I know they did for a significant period of time by like significant measure. And obviously some of it is shooting percentage luck, but 
if you look at the personnel they have, I do think it is different than it's been in the past. And I wonder, um, I still think they have generally that label of kind of being a, a nerdy team that has great analytics, but can't finish. And I don't think that's the case anymore. I'm not sure that the average casual fan like really even realize realizes how great a player Dougie Hamilton is as an example. Um, The Trocheck move was big for them as well. Like, I I mean, if if you're asking me who pick who I think would win a Tampa Bay Carolina series, if Tampa Bay has Stamkos back and and Kucherov for the playoffs, I'm picking Tampa Bay. Um, I think they're just a little bit deeper. They do have the best goalie in in the world, which offsets a lot of their uh, limitations, I would say. I, but I mean, Carolina's a great, like if Carolina, let me put it this way. I think Carolina is a legitimate Stanley cup finals content, Stanley cup contender, like Carolina can win the cup this year. And I don't know how many average hockey fans would, would say that they have a chance. Yeah. Well, I was looking at pinnacle today. I think they've got Tampa Bay at plus six twenty or so. And they've got Carolina at plus thirteen sixty to win the cup. I have I think some Carolina. Teams, I think I have some Carolina closer. to win the division. I have some Carolina to win the division from mid year, not mm-hmm. prior prior to the season. But uh, they are they're clo- they're closer. Like um, I, I mean, I don't want to completely discredit Florida either, but the loss of Ekblad was rough for them. And frankly, if they're going to ride Bobrovsky, I, which I mean, they pay him a lot of money. Yeah. He'll start the first playoff game for them. Um, I think that's a questionable decision that that might end up hurting them. Um, but yeah, Carolina's they're deep. They're good. Um, I mean, I'm obviously rooting for the Leafs. If the Leafs don't win, I've got so I loaded so many futures over the course of the year on, on Colorado at like plus seven fifty, plus eight hundred, which are yeah, they're plus four thirty right now. now. So yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I think that's, uh, that's going to be it for today's show. Um, Rob, where can, uh, where can people check you out? I'm not going to ask you to plug your work, but uh, people can check you out on Twitter for your um, musings and all this stuff. Yep. Uh, t- follow me on Twitter, please. At Rob Pizzola for the Americans. That's double Z for the Canadians, double Z. <laughs> um, I tweet about all sports focused mostly on the, the, the betting side of things. Um, and I always do say when I, when I plug my Twitter account, I do keep my DMS open as well for anyone that has any questions just about betting in general, I'm not going to tell you how I build my bottles or give you the, the secret sauce, but I'm more than happy to answer any questions that you, uh, that you might have. So feel free to use that. I do respond to every DM unless you tell me, uh, you know, to, to jump off a bridge or something, or I do get some, some pretty rough ones here and there, but I respond to the ones that, that uh, should be responded to. So feel free to leverage that. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate your transparency and, uh, and just the, uh, the good chat and I uh, will have you back on sometime down the road. So enjoy the rest of the season and we'll, uh, we'll check in soon. Thanks for having me. All right. That's going to be it for today's episode of the hockey cast. Hopefully you enjoyed my chat with Rob as much as I did. Uh, love having him on the show and just picking his brain about stuff because I, uh, I think the way he thinks about the game is really insightful and innovative. And so, uh, always learn some stuff, just talking about ideas with him. Uh, if you did enjoy the show, uh, you can help us out by rating and reviewing the hockey cast. It is really easy to do. It only takes a minute of your time. You can just go leave us the five stars. If you want to go above and beyond, you can 
leave a full review and let us know either why you love the show or why you recommend people check it out. And uh, all of those ratings and reviews are greatly appreciated. And thank you to all of you that have, uh, that have done so already. Um, if you listen to the show and you're wondering why we didn't do a full trade deadline theme show instead, um, a peek behind the curtains, I actually did a full trade deadline winners and losers show the night of with Shana Goldman and Andrew Berkshire, both of whom have been on the PDO cast before. And unfortunately, because of my fault entirely, a show wasn't recorded properly and we couldn't salvage the audio. And so it's just going to go down uh, in the record books as the lost PDO cast. And it's a shame because I, I really enjoy the conversation and it was a really fun one. But hopefully we're going to have more opportunities here down the road to reflect on the trades and the fits of the players on their new teams and all the decisions they were made and so on and so forth. If you are curious for my takes on all the trades, um, I did so in written form on EP Rinkside. If you aren't subscribed yet, I get it. There's a ton of different uh, websites and, and sports journalism to subscribe to these days, but you can check it out by using the promo code I love EP. And it'll give you two free months off of an annual subscription. And we've got tons of new content there pretty much every single day from a bunch of different voices. And I can't recommend it enough. If you are a hockey nerd, and I assume you are, if you're still listening to the Hockey PDO cast at this point of the show, you are going to really vibe with the material we put out there. So I highly recommend checking that out. And we've got a ton of trade deadline coverage on there. And yeah, that's going to be it for today's show. We're going to be back soon here, hopefully. Plenty of stuff to talk about as we wind down towards the end of the regular season and the stretch run and head towards the postseason. So really looking forward to that. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting the show. And we will be back soon. The Hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDOcast.